Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome to University Baptist Church. My name is Matt, and I'm the music minister here, and we are delighted that you are here with us today. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet as we prepare to worship the Lord through song. Um, the first song that we're going to sing this morning is called This is Amazing Grace. And, you know, what makes grace so amazing? There are many reasons, um, but I'd like to talk about one this morning, and that is that God's grace um, allows us to have strength in weakness. God gives us his strength in our weakness. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. He was talking about the thorn in his flesh, um, that it should leave me. But he said to me, Jesus said this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, let's rejoice in the strength that we have in Jesus Christ this morning. Let's sing, Your Grace is Enough. This is amazing grace. Sing together. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder? Who leaves us breathless? Above all kings, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You lay down your life that I would be set free. We thank you for your grace, the strength that you give us. Let's sing this. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan a son and daughter? The King of glory, the King of glory. Who rules the nations with truth and justice? Shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. The King of glory. Above all kings, so we sing. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set free. worthy. 
sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Oh, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. of our praise this morning. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden softer gleam oh praise him oh praise him alleluia 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 let all things let all things their creator bless Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. All the redeemed washed by His blood. in his great love oh praise him alleluia for Christ has defeated every sin hallelujah cast all your burdens now on him oh praise him oh praise him alleluia
shall return in power to reign. Heaven and earth will join to say, oh, praise him. Alleluia. Then who shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and
Are you sure? Hey. All right, here we go. Okay, y'all can go ahead and make your way back to your seats, and Miss Trisha Ryan is going to lead us in our children's time this morning. All right, can everybody hear me? Yay, we got, we have, we have noise. All right, um, hi friends. So today, Pastor Jeremiah is going to be talking about a, you're going to hear a word called worship. But um, in the passage that he's going to be reading, worship is also, it's stated as fear. And it's stated like this, Jonah says that I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. So when you think about fear, what do you think about? What do you think about when you, th when you think about fear? Eve, what do you think about? Yeah, so when we think about fear, it's a negative feeling. We're scared. And it's a negative feeling because we think something is going to harm us. But in this case, when Jonah says that I fear the Lord, he doesn't fear that God is going to harm him. He actually thinks so highly of him, it means something different. And it's a positive feeling, and it's a feeling of God is so amazing, and I'm in so much awe of him that the only thing I can do is worship him. So when you hear when it says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the fear there is actually worship. And so I was thinking about that, and there's another verse in the Bible in 1 Samuel 12, 24, and it says this. It says, above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. So what are some great things he has done for us? Can you think of one great thing he has done? Abigail. He made everything he made everything. He's the creator of everything. So when I think about him and when I'm in awe of him, I'm thinking about the oceans and the mountains and the beautiful sunset. And you know what else I'm thinking about? All of you. Because he created all of you and you are great. And so when you think about God today and you think about him the rest of the week, because that's what I want you to do, I want you to think about ways that you can worship him, but I want you to think about the great things he has done for you, okay? So let's go ahead and pray, and then you guys can go back to your seats. Father, we thank you that um, we can consider you, and we can consider all the great things you have done with us, from creating the beautiful world to creating these beautiful children in front of me. We pray that you would bring to mind those great things and that we would be in complete awe of how amazing you are. We ask now that you would bless those who are bringing their offerings and tithes, that you would bless it to the work of your ministry, Father, and to the work of your kingdom. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Let's stand together. Let's respond with that invitation. Church of Christ invincible, the people of the Lord, empowered by the Spirit's breath and nourished by His Word, His covenant of grace will be our portion evermore. For He who called us will not change our help and our reward. What a comfort that is that our God will not change. Oh, chosen people called by grace, you and me, the sons of Abraham, who walk by faith in things unseen, and on his promise stand that every nation of the earth will hear of boundless love that causes broken hearts to heal and pays our debts with blood. O church of Christ in sorrow now, where evil lies in wait, when trials and persecutions come, this light will never fade. For though the hordes of hell may rage, their power will not endure. Our times are in the Father's hand, our anchor is secure. We put our trust in you, God. O Church of Christ, upon that day, when all are gathered in, when every tear is wiped away, with every trace of sin, where justice, truth, and beauty shine, and death has passed away, where God and man will dwell as one for all eternity. What a marvelous hope we have. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. How great He is. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art.
job, church. Y'all sound good. It's good to see everyone this morning. You all doing well? Yeah? Doing okay? Good. Everybody's alive and awake. It is, it's an exciting weekend, and uh, I'm so grateful to, to be here with you all and, and to have the chance to worship together. I want to reiterate something that was said earlier. Uh, if you're a guest or you're a visitor, man, we are so glad that you're here with us today. And uh, we're grateful that this is an opportunity for you to come here and worship with us, and we hope it is a meaningful Sunday for you. Uh, but I would also add to that, that if you're a, a member, and you've been a part of this church family for a year, uh, five years, 10 years, 20, 40, 60, whatever it is, we're, we're glad you're here as well. And uh, I want to take the time for all of us to just stop and consider for a moment 
why it is that we come here, right? I, I want to make sure that we don't forget what it is that brings us to this place every week, right? That, that essentially, if I were to summarize it for us, the reason we come here, the reason we sing, the reason we do all these things is so that our souls can rejoice in what God has done, right? That's why we're here. It, it, we have to remember that one of the chief characteristics of the Christian life is to be joyful, right? That we are these, these people that have been so transformed that joy is just evident in our lives. Now, I recognize that's not always easy, right? That there are times that we fall into the mundane and we fall into the monotonous and we kind of lose the sense of what it is that compels us towards joy. Or, or maybe we go through certain seasons and circumstances where joy just seems to be incredibly difficult to come by. And it's elusive, right? And it's hard for us to, to foster it. And so I want us to begin with just the appropriate perspective as we come together and we prepare to open up God's word. Because we all know that there are these, these struggles in our lives, there are these things in our lives that create that separation. But the reason you and I can be joyful is because the creator, this great God that we just sung about, the one who has put everything into place, the one that brings us into existence, that gives us life and breath has revealed an all-consuming love for us through the person of Jesus Christ, right? And that through Jesus, we have this amazing realization that though we have been separated from God through his death on the cross, through his blood, we find this forgiveness that brings us near so that we can stand justified before the throne room of grace with freedom and confidence, and not only that, the resurrection from the grave gives us a reminder that we have a hope, not just for this life, but the life that is to come. So it's through this justification, it's through this hope that we come together and we sing, that we come together and we look at God's word and we long for his teaching and his truth because what you and I can remember each and every week, better even each and every day, is that we have been given this gospel and it is absolutely, undeniably good news. And we have a reason to be joyful. That's why we're here. And so with every effort, with every moment, let us fixate our hearts, our souls, and our minds on what God has done. And let our souls rejoice in who he is. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we are joyful today. We celebrate the gift of this gospel, this good news that changes us. And so we pray that as we open up your word today, that this would be something that would ignite within all of us. Father, that it would awaken our souls and our hearts to a greater devotion and a greater love and commitment to you. Father, we pray that you would be evident in this room today, that we would be unable to escape your presence because of your all-consuming love for each and every one of us. Father, we pray that your word would now be living and active, that we would handle it faithfully, and that we would steward it well, and that you would transform us accordingly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a good weekend to be joyful, is it not? I mean, it's, it's a three-day weekend. Can I get an amen? Right? There's always a reason to celebrate a three-day weekend, which also means that summer is, is basically upon us, right? I mean, you, it's almost like you can feel it and you can sense it in the air. It's time to celebrate the end of school, time to celebrate vacations, time to celebrate the Texas weather. Can I get an amen? Never as much on that one, right? It's not something that we're really looking forward to. And so much to celebrate this weekend, but also I do want to point out at the beginning here the significance of this weekend as well. Right? On May 5th, 1868, General John A. Logan uh, made a declaration for, for folks to stop and remember the fallen soldiers who had given their lives 
in the course of the Civil War. Here's what he said. He said, the 30th of May, 1868, is designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in the defense of their country during the late rebellion and whose bodies now lie in almost every city, village, and hamlet churchyard in the land. And so as it uh, unfolded just uh, later that month, on May 30th, 1868, more than 5,000 people gathered at Arlington Cemetery to decorate the graves of almost 20,000 soldiers that had lost their lives in the Civil War. And so many other states adopted this practice, and it became a, a, a common tradition and became known as Decoration Day. And as time wore on and we got into the 20th century, got past First World War, we, we began to recognize that it wasn't just for us to, to stop and consider those that lost their lives in the Civil War, but any American that had lost their life in any war. And, and so we ceased to really refer to it as Decoration Day, and it became known as Memorial Day. And so I, I want to start, start here this morning by just acknowledging the significance of the weekend. Um, if you have a family member, a loved one, a friend that you know in your life who has, who has paid that ultimate sacrifice, right, who gave their life for our country, uh, we just want to do our best to honor their memory today by expressing to you our sincerest and deepest gratitude for the debt that they paid. Uh, I would also offer up that I know there are many of you that have served our country in a similar capacity and have been willing to risk their lives in such a way, and we also share that same gratitude towards you as well. Uh, it is definitely something to, to stop and reflect upon this weekend. And, and oftentimes when we stop and reflect upon Memorial Day, uh, there is a tendency to look into the value of sacrifice, to look into uh, the cost of freedom, and all those things are associated with it. But what I want to point out for us this morning as we begin is just the significance for us to have these regular moments in our lives to make sure we remember what has been done for us, right? To make sure that we don't forget certain things. And I, I think that's really important. We, it's, it's almost just a, a natural part of being human, isn't it? To have these moments and these impulses to want to remember things. And, and sometimes those memories are meant to drive us back to the significant, like Memorial Day. And sometimes it's just other random occurrences. And I was reminded of that uh, on my own personal experience this weekend. Uh, this past weekend, I, I ventured into one of those seasons and circumstances that many of us have faced before. And, and it's one that we typically approach with dread and angst and anxiety and concern. I'm talking about that overwhelming burden when we have to host a garage sale, right? You've been there with me before, right? It's, it's not anything any of us typically enjoy having to do. Going to garage sales is one experience. Hosting a garage sale is a whole nother experience, and yet it was something that I felt like we needed to do, and, and I'll tell you, nobody really likes hosting garage sales, correct? I mean, the only reason you would, like, you, would, you would need to host a garage sale is if there's something within you that feels like you just need to punish yourself, Right? Maybe there's some unrepentant sin in your life and you just feel like you need to work that out through some form of misery. And so it's so much effort. And now granted, every time I have one, I feel like I get 15 new sermon illustrations. And so I'm going to spare you. I'm only going to give you one this morning. But, but it's a phenomenal experience in interacting with others and just observing the human psyche and whatnot. But I want to talk to you not so much about the folks that I interacted with the other day, uh, but just the preparation for a garage sale. Because the first step into preparing for a garage sale is really a step of humility. It's that moment when you realize you have so much stuff and you don't really know where it all came from, right? And, and for me, I know that Jennifer and myself, we, we could guard against this more often than not before we had children. 
But once you have children, it's weird how like everything in your house just multiplies. You know, it's like you put these toys in these little bins in these baskets and you put one in and then you wake up the next day and there's 15 in there. It's like they multiply overnight. It's the same with their clothes. And so we were at this place where we just realized we were so overwhelmed with stuff, we needed to declutter. And so you, you, you go through this methodical process of walking through every room and every item you grab, you kind of make one of three choices, right? Is this to sell? Is it to trash? Or is it to keep, right? Is this something that I think somebody else would purchase? Is this something I need to throw away? Or is this something I need to keep? A lot of times when you go through this process, the decision is pretty easy, right? It's pretty obvious for you. So like you start going through your medicine cabinet and you discover Tamiflu that expired in 2012, right? That's a keeper, right? You got to hold on to that one, right? Don't, don't lose that one. Um, it's pretty obvious certain things that you just need to discard of. And then you, you come across other things that, um, you know, you can tell still work, they're, they're pretty good, and somebody will, will buy it if you don't use it anymore. The one category that I struggle with the most is deciding what to keep. And the reason I struggle with it is because I'll be sitting there, I'll be going through some stuff, and I'll come across like an old toy that my kids used to play with. And the thing will be faded, it'll be broken, like it doesn't work anymore, it's like missing an arm and all this, like, like Buzz Lightyear is in the garage and he doesn't make any noise, his helmet's cracked, but I was like, oh, you know, and, and I wanted to keep it. And, and the, the whole reason I wanted to keep it was why? Because I wanted to remember that season of life, right? I have all these memories of my children playing with that toy and, and, and that impulse to keep those things is a desire to remember certain seasons of life. And, and that's something that we all carry with us in different contexts and in different situations, this desire to remember things and to not forget things that have gone before us. And, and I bring that to your attention this morning because I feel like that's, that's a pretty significant undercurrent to what we're going to read in our next few verses in Jonah. And, and we're going to have the chance to see Jonah in a very indirect way kind of remember who God is and what God has done. And in his remembering, we're going to see this really interesting exchange between the sailors on the ship and, and Jonah himself. And it's going to create this kind of contrast between those that live their life in a spirit of fear and those that live it in a spirit of worship. And, and what I'm going to argue is that for us, we are able to, to follow suit by remembering who God is and what he has done so that we also can live a life of worship. And so that's, that's the goal for us today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 1, and we'll begin to work through some of these verses. Now, uh, we've, we've started the series, what, three weeks ago, four weeks ago? And so this is uh, the fourth message in this series. A quick recap. When we started this series, we looked at those first two verses and saw in an introduction the word of the Lord being revealed, right? And we talked about the challenge of understanding and making sure we comprehended what God was saying to us. And, and we looked at that through some practical ways. But then we moved into the next week and we saw Jonah's response to the Lord, right? That he ran away, completely disobedient to what God had asked him to do. And so we talked about those seasons in life and acknowledged that all of us are moving in one direction or another. We're either pressing in or we're running away. And for us to evaluate where we are in our seasons of life and in which direction we're moving. And then last week we had a chance to see the Lord's response to Jonah. Right, that the Lord sent a great wind. And we wrestled with those hard questions. What do we do with storms in life? How do we make sense of, of these moments when bad things happen to good people? And, and even perhaps more, in a more difficult question, how do we make sense of a God who sins and creates these storms? And what we began to see 
was that when we go through these seasons, when we go through these storms, we should see them as, as a hardship that really could be viewed as discipline. And that, that word can scare us, but when we looked at the, the book of Hebrews, we see that that discipline is not rooted in God's anger, but in his love. And so we could be reminded of the fact that, that though outwardly we may be wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And so these storms, these seasons, these momentary troubles are achieving within us a glory that far outweighs them all. Every moment of pain and difficulty is worth it. It's meaningful. It's helping us press into God and great, more greatly understand the love that he has for us. And that's what we talked about last week. And so now, we're going to continue in verse 7, and we're going to see that this storm that, that Jonah has found himself in, and these sailors have found themselves in, it's still ongoing, and now we get to see kind of how they interact with each other. So picking back up in verse 7, it says, Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Okay, very interesting exchange that we have here between Jonah and these sailors, and it begins with this picture of them casting lots. Okay, now what is... What is casting lots? What is this act that's, that we're, we're seeing unfold for us here? We, we see this, this practice of casting lots repeatedly show up in the Old Testament, right? It comes up numerous times, but never in a manner that gives us a really clear definition that kind of gives us a, a, a very explicit understanding of what is actually taking place. And, and so we kind of have to guess a little bit in terms of what it looks like. Now, we do know that it was a practice that was used to help make pretty significant decisions, and so what you can look at, or what I found through some research, is that perhaps one way in which this would work is that folks would gather around and they would grab these stones or these pebbles or these rocks and they would kind of treat them like dice. And, and they would uh, maybe like paint alternating signs, a, a, a sides a light color and a dark color, and then they would roll two dice and for maybe like, let's say, uh, two of them came up with a light color, well then that was a, a word of favor, right? And then if two came up with a dark color, well then that was, that was a bad omen for you and then it was alternating colors it was like well let's do it again right it's inconclusive and so maybe a, a, a way to think about it is this kind of the ancient practice of the magic eight ball right so it's like they're sitting there like is Jonah the reason for the storm ask again later right I mean that's kind of what's going on here they're trying to understand certain things and so they're casting lots and the reason they're casting lots according to this verse is to find out that word means to discover, to understand, to make some form of a determination. And so essentially what we see here is that they are trying to understand God's will. Right? They're in this season, they're in this circumstance, they can't make sense of it, and they're trying to figure out what is next. What is God asking of us? What steps do we need to take to move out of this season of life? How do we move forward? What is God's will? It's a really important question, and, and it's one that I think we need to ask ourselves this morning, because it's a question that all of us probably encounter at some time or another. What is God's will for my life, and how am I going to seek to understand his will for my life? And, and hopefully it's something better than a magic eight ball, 
right? And so we need to think through those practical steps to take. And so I'm curious, what, what do you do in your life? Like, how do you discern what God's will is and where he's leading you? Well, there's a lot of different ways that we could answer that question. I, I want to just quickly cover five things that I would suggest for you in terms of discerning God's will and making sure that we, we do this well. The first is that we should always pursue obedience. When we're trying to understand God's will in our life, obedience has to be at the forefront. And, and what I would say to that is that that means knowing the scriptures. Right? I often marvel at how often people will say how they're trying to figure out what God wants from them. And I'm like, have you checked the book? Right? I mean, what God really wanted us to know, he, he put it in writing. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are going to be left nebulous and things that we're not going to know some details on. But if you want to know what it means, who he wants you to be as a man, who he wants you to be as a woman, a husband, a father, a wife, a son, a daughter, all the different roles, relationships, man, he put it down in writing. Know the scriptures. Right? We are a church that desires to be biblically guided. And so that means that the first step in order to know God's will is to pursue obedience. That was one of Jonah's greatest flaws is he neglected the word of the Lord. And so we need to pursue an understanding of his will by pursuing obedience. The second thing I would offer is that we also need to dream big, right? We need to understand what our God is capable of. See, a lot of times I feel like we miss God's will because we forget his strength and his power and we limit him, right? And, and we kind of think too small with what God wants to do in us and through us. And when we begin to live that way, I, I would argue that it seems as though that we're following a concept more than we're following a king. But this is a God who can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so understand that his will is going to accomplish more than we could ask or imagine. And so anticipate that. Dream for that. Think of things that, that go beyond our capabilities so that they lead us into a greater reliance upon him. Right, we pursue obedience, we dream big. The other thing is that we need to just be wise. Right? If, if we're gonna try to seek to understand God's will in our life, we need to exercise a certain level of wisdom. I, I would say that would include, obviously, consulting the scriptures. I think that also includes prayer. Right? Finding those moments where we can just listen and hear what it is that he's trying to say to us, to quiet our hearts and our souls and our minds, and also to seek godly counsel. Right? Visiting with other people that can share their wisdom, that can share their perspective, that can affirm certain things or challenge certain things or hold us accountable, right? Seek godly counsel. So we need to pursue obedience. We need to dream big and we need to be wise. The fourth thing is the one that's also, I think, very difficult is we need to be willing to surrender comfort, right? That, that when God offers a word to us, we need to grow um, to a greater awareness that more often than not, that leads people to a place of discomfort, right? When Jesus calls his disciples, it was often very confrontational. When God tells Abraham to go, it was a call to leave comfort. A lot of times we miss God's will in our life because we limit the arena in which we want him to call us. And we say, okay, here's, here's where I live. Here's, what is, here's where I want you to, to speak to me. As long as we move within this arena, I'm good. Right? This is my little sandbox. But the moment that God asks us to get beyond that sandbox, we say, well, I don't know if I really want to play anymore. We have to be willing to understand that God's going to call us to possibly being uncomfortable. That's often where his will leads. And the fifth one that I would say is, is probably one of the most important things in understanding God's will is, is not looking beyond the present moment. 
Right? A lot of times we begin to wrestle with God's will in our lives, and it, and it leads us into the future. It leads us into this distant glimpse and into things way ahead. Now, it's important to plan. It's important to anticipate. But a lot of times we do so to the neglect of today. So it's not just what is God's will for tomorrow, but what does God want from me today? How am I to pursue him in this moment? How do I glorify him on this particular situation? How do I speak to these people in a way that is edifying? How do I pursue my job in a way that is meaningful? How do I do all these different relationships and experiences in a way that is God-honoring? Right? Live in the present moment. Jesus himself says it, right? Tomorrow has many worries. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. Seek you first the kingdom and everything else will be given to you. So we have to, to consider all those factors. Those are just a couple suggestions, right? Uh, pursue obedience, dream big, be wise, surrender comfort, and live in the present moment. This is how we can begin to better understand God's call in our life. And so this is essentially what they're trying to do in this particular situation. They're trying to understand, they're trying to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Now this is a really interesting description, okay? And there's, there's some uh, perspective that we need to offer up here. When you see this word calamity, it's actually the same word that we find in verse 2. Okay, so it, it tells us that this, there's this trouble. And there's a couple of things we can learn from that. One is, is that clearly the sailors have always, already tried to make some sort of effort to, uh, to alleviate the storm. And so they kept saying, call out each to your own God, right? Call out in prayers. Pray to each God. Maybe, maybe he will notice us, right? Well, those prayers are not working, right? Who what? Whatever God they're calling out to, it's not working. And so we're seeing that that effort has been rendered futile in this particular situation. But the fact that this word matches the one in verse 2 is pretty interesting. Because in verse 2, it's what the word is used to describe Nineveh, right? The wickedness of Nineveh. But if you go back with me to that intro, what we talked about is a more holistic understanding of that word is not so much wickedness, but trouble, it's a word that tells us that because of someone's sin or disobedience, it's led to a very difficult or challenging situation. So Nineveh was in a similar spot. And so now we see that this storm is a result of this disobedience that we know of as Jonah's, and it has created this calamity. So here's what has happened. Here's why that's important, is that it's almost as if what we see with Jonah and these sailors is, is emblematic of what's happened to Nineveh. Right, so, so Jonah has been disobedient, and so he's run away from the Lord, and now he's in this troublesome situation, and the only way out is what? Repentance, to go back to the Lord. Well, Nineveh had run away from the Lord, right? They, had, they were disobedient, and, and now they were in this trouble, right? There, there was national concerns, there was military defeats, all these different things. They were in trouble, and the only way out, according to God, was for them to repent, and to return to him. And so essentially what's happening is that Jonah is going through a very similar experience spiritually and emotionally that's going to help him better understand how to connect with those in Nineveh. And this is something that God often does to us. But a lot of times we go through these storms in life so that we're better equipped to handle others who are going through similar storms. Right? That, that maybe the reason you go through the difficulty of cancer is not only so that you can press into God and see his, his love for you in the way that you rely upon him, but then you can also help lead others through that similar storm, right? That, that maybe the reason we struggle with grief 
And we have to go through losing a loved one so that we can reach out to others in a similar situation and say, here's how you navigate through this. Right? We talked about this in January, that God takes our stories and he makes his appeal through us. Your stories matter, both good and bad seasons. God can use you in seasons of good fortune as well as the storms. And so that's what's happened with Jonah. It's almost representative. It's like God's refining him so that he can better, be better equipped to convey this message to Nineveh. And so he's going through this calamity. So what happens? They cast lots. A lot falls to Jonah. And so now they're aware of what's, of, of what's taking place, the cause of it. And so the sailors just begin to pepper him with questions. So who's responsible for this? And what do you do? And where are you from? And what country? What people? They ask all these questions and just kind of bombard him, trying to understand what's going on. Those first few questions are really just trying to understand the God that would maybe be representative in Jonah's life, right? And so they're trying to figure out certain things. Like, so like the question of what do you do or what do you work is not so much a, a, a laborsome or a, a, an issue of labor and toil, but it's like the skill and the craft that Jonah has, uh, his, his particular skill set. They're trying to figure out, okay, is he, is he a priest? Is he doing something? Uh, is there something going on in his life that by us helping him, we're kind of like aiding and abetting a criminal? Is that what's put us in this situation? They're, they're trying to figure out all these things. But the main thrust of those questions are those last three that take them to a question of what? Take them to a question of where he's from, his place of origin. And here's the reason they're asking so much about that. If you remember, the, the, the sailors are polytheistic, right? They believe in multiple gods, each to their own god. And so what they can see in polytheism is that there were all these different levels of worship or different gods that you would align yourself with. You would have a, a god that you worship according to your country, maybe a god over your family, maybe a god for you personally. And the most important god in that kind of structure and hierarchy was the god from a particular region or country. And so why they're asking where he's from is so that they can figure out, okay, which god does he serve? Now remember Jonah got on boat in Joppa, got on the boat in Joppa, so they're probably assuming he's Palestinian and, and thinking, okay, which region is he from? And maybe that'll tell us which God he serves and what that God's going to require in order for us to get out of this storm, right? So they're trying to figure out who he represents. Now, what we see with the sailor's response is this kind of frantic, panicked, concerned state that they are trying to seek, so desperately trying to grasp and understand. And so what describes the sailors here is that word fear, right? If you skip down to verse 10, what we're seeing from these sailors in this exchange from Jonah is that they're terrified, right? It was actually already used to describe them earlier, I think in what, verse 5, where it said that they were afraid. And so what we can acknowledge through the way in which these sailors are acting is that because of their lack of understanding, because of their confusion, because of their, their inability to know who this God is, they were living a life of fear. They had no idea how to navigate through this storm. And it terrified them. Right? Now contrast that to Jonah, who, yes, he has been disobedient. Yes, he has struggled. But in them asking their questions, you have this moment where Jonah kind of reveals who he is. He says, I'm a Hebrew. Now, the word Hebrew is the word that they would use to describe themselves to foreigners, right? It was, it was a way to acknowledge the distinctiveness of God's people. He says, so I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. And with that declaration of worship, 
that, yes, kind of has that connotation of fear, but one more out of reverence, one more out of submission and devotion, we now have this contrast between those who live their lives according to fear and those who live according to worship. And that, to me, is the question for us this morning. When you think about your life and how you function and how you pursue God's call, would you say you're one who is more shackled by fear or one who's committed to worship? In order to answer that question, I want us to think more intently about what worship looks like. There's this book that I came across not too long ago. It was written by James K.A. Smith, and it's called You Are What You Love. And it speaks to this important realization of worship. And he kind of takes us, the author takes us down this, this road, this trajectory, where he says, first of all, we need to understand that we have a creator, right? That our creator determines our purposes, he determines our plans. And so when we encounter the gospel and we respond to the gospel, the gospel is a way for us to have a greater understanding in terms of what it means to be human, right? To, to know how God desires us to live, how God desires us to function, how, how we are to best reflect him in our lives, to be the image bearers he created us to be. Right? So that's the first step. The second is to know that we're never stagnant. We're always being drawn towards something. That we always are compelled by some sort of love, some sort of devotion, some sort of longing of the heart. And that those longings, those desires are what lead us towards worship. And so here's this quote from James Smith. Shout out. Uh, not the same one. He says, unfortunately... The language of the heart has been co-opted in our culture, enlisted in the sappy sentimentalism of Hallmark, and thus equated with a kind of emotivism. This is not what the biblical language of the cardia suggests. Instead, think of the heart as the fulcrum of your most fundamental longings, a visceral subconscious orientation to the world. So in this picture, the center gravity of the human person is not located in the intellect, but in the heart. Why? Because the heart is the chamber of our love, and it is our loves that orient us towards some ultimate end. It's not just that I know some end or believe in some goal, but more than that, I long for some end. I want something and want it ultimately. It is my desires that defines me. In short, you are what you love. I love that quote. Right? It forces us to understand that when we ask Hey, what's the difference between living a life of fear and worship? That it's not enough for us just to say, well, yeah, I love Jesus and I believe in some goal and some end. The greater question is, what do you long for ultimately? What, where is your heart's desire? It is very easy for us in this day and age to come into this room, to come into this building or any room like it and declare with our lips and sing songs about how much we love Jesus and go live a life that says completely otherwise. That our greater longings are for some sort of material gain or some sort of notoriety or some sort of status, some sort of relationship. There are so many things that we can say with our mouths but not truly live with our hearts. Worship is what you ultimately long for. And so this gives us kind of this throwback to our series in April, right? That all of us are created to worship something. Our heart is going to long for something. And if we deviate from longing from the creator, we're going to find ourselves falling at the feet of worthless idols. And in that devotion, we ourselves become worthless, right? And so we get this amazing picture 
between the sailors and Jonah. And I love that Jonah is able to articulate it even in the midst of disobedience. And that's, to me, what I feel like. If, if I were to, to step into this moment in time, while it's somewhat conjecture, what I feel like is happening is that Mo, Jonah's having this moment of clarity. He's remembering what God has done. And so he, he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and dry land. And he gives us this really eloquent description of who God is. The, the first thing to point out is that when he says, I worship the Lord, this kind of leaps off the page when you're reading it in the Hebrew because over and over again at the beginning, we see all these references to Yahweh, to Yahweh. But when the sailors speak, when they're saying, cry out to a God, cry out to your God, they're using Elohim. And so it's a different word. It's a word that's more generic. And so here they are. They're asking him these questions, and he reveals who the God is that he serves. I worship Yahweh. And he gives him his name, and then he, he describes him. Right? He is the God of the heavens. Now that, that phrase is somewhat of a title that reiterates God's supremacy. Right? That reminds us of his, his sovereignty. And not only his sovereignty, but I would also say it reminds us of his promise. Because when we stop and acknowledge that God is the God of heaven, he is this creator, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, you and I should be called back into this reality that the promise that we wait for is the new heaven and the new earth. Right? It's this hope for a life that goes beyond just today. It's this new Jerusalem, this new city, this new Zion where we get to walk and dwell with the king. This is what we long for. This is the God. He is the one who creates the heavens. He doesn't just exist there. He creates them. He's the, the God of the heavens, and he's the maker of the sea and the dry land. This, this, this reference to him making is a verb that we see over and over again in Genesis, right, that he speaks our, our very world into existence. Time and time again, we see that sovereignty. But in this particular verse, we see it described by fixating on two particular elements, the sea and the dry ground. And, and that's obviously very telling. And, and so he confesses the maker of the sea, and over and over again in the scriptures, in the Psalms and many other places, we see how God controls the seas and the waters. And obviously here, in the midst of the storm, that elicits a pretty strong reaction from the sailors because essentially Jonah's saying, yes, I'm, our God, my disobedience, this situation, it's, it's all because of me and the God that I serve. And so that's when they're terrified, right? They come back and they're like, well, why have you done this to us, right? You're the reason. And so Jonah is admitting it by calling out God's sovereignty and his control over the sea. But he pairs it with the dry ground. And it's a really interesting a picture in my mind, because obviously it could take you back to Genesis 1, where we see God separate the waters from the land. But what it really makes me think of is the Exodus, right? This moment where, where God's people who had been living in, in captivity and bondage and slavery, right, they're brought to the Red Sea, and God exerts this sovereignty, this supremacy by, by parting the waters and then allowing them to, to arrive on the other side safely on dry ground. It's this amazing picture in this image of what God does for all of us, right? That he can part the waters and allow us to arrive safely on dry ground, right? It's this call towards eternity shores, right? It's this, this heavenly home that we long for. And so Jonah is offering this poetic 
description. Right? I, I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and the dry ground, and all of it should remind us of his deliverance. Now, what's significant about this, here's how I want to close this. What's significant about this is that Jonah is answering this question with, with, a, with, a, dirt, uh, with a certain intentionality. I, I don't think that he's just offering some sort of creed that he was familiar with reciting. Right? This wasn't just like some standard title or phrase that be attributed to God. What I feel like we have here is this moment where Jonah is truly coming to grips with what he has done. Right? He's, he's coming to this moment of realization, realizing I can't escape his power. I can't escape his call. It's that fulfillment of Psalm 139. If I go to the heights, he is there. If I go to the depths, even there you will find me. He's acknowledging that there is no way that he can elude the sovereignty of the living God. And so in that, he is remembering who God is. He's remembering his power. He's remembering his strength. He's remembering his sovereignty and all of its power and all of its motive and all that God is doing for him. And it's in this moment that he is getting to declare who our God is and he's remembering what he has done. And it's in that remembering, yes, even in the sense of disobedience, the season of disobedience, that he's able to return to a spirit of worship. Now, we'll see what unfolds in the coming weeks and how he responds to this moment of confession. But today, what we're able to see by just looking at these few verses is that when we fix our eyes on who God is and what he has done, and we remember those things, it leads us to a greater devotion in worship. To fail to do so leads a life of fear. To commit ourselves to him leads us to a life of worship. And so with that being said, here's how I want to close. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to journey back to a particular moment in time. And I want you to to picture it as, as intentionally and as in much detail as you can. I want you to remember a time in your life when you felt incredibly close to God. A moment, a situation, a season where you could just sense his grace, where you had this undeniable awareness of his presence. Maybe it's that moment where you could feel your heart burning within you and you first decided to surrender to him. Maybe it's the tenderness of that moment in which you you welcomed a child into the world and you were just in awe of his supremacy and his, his creative design. Maybe it's a, a trial that you went through and you saw how he was faithful, how he parted the waters and he led you through dry ground. But I want you to picture this. I want you to remember what he has done for you. I want you to think of it very specifically. I want you to see it and I want you just to, in your heart, Offer a prayer of gratitude for who he is and what he has done. I want want you to keep your eyes closed and as you are thinking about this moment, I'm going to recite for you some lyrics that we're about to sing. And I want you to hear these words. I'm going to modify them slightly just for this purpose right now, for us to hear them as a church. But as you hear these words and you think about those moments and you're mindful of what God has done, I want us to to see the significance of how he leads us and what a life of worship truly looks like. For we can see that our days are numbered, that all of us were made to walk with him. 
We look for worldly treasure and we forsake the King of Kings, but our hope is in our Redeemer. And though we fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing, and we are his forevermore. Ours are tears and times of sorrow and darkness we don't understand. Through the valleys we must travel where we see no earthly good. But ours is peace that flows from heaven, and their strength in times of need. For we know that our pain will not be wasted, for Christ completes his work in all of us. Ours are days where we are here as a stranger, we're pilgrims on a narrow way, yet one with Christ we will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But ours is armor for this battle, and we are strong enough to last the war, for he has said he will deliver us safely to the golden shore. For ours are keys to Zion City, where beside the king we walk. For our heart has found its treasure. Christ is ours forevermore. So church, come now. Rejoice with all your soul. For his love is our reward. Fear is gone. Our hope is sure. Christ is ours forevermore. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful for this hope and for this gospel that changes us. And so I just pray that for each and every one of us today, Father, we could leave here with an undeniable sense of joy because of what you've done for us through the cross. Father, that we could see that no matter where you lead us and no matter where you take us, we can live a life of worship, we can live a life of complete devotion. For we see that we serve you, the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and dry land. And you lead us. So may we not run from you, but may we press into you so that once again our hearts can have what we need and we can truly worship you in spirit and in truth and a love that lasts and stands on the promises of Jesus Christ. For it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. So our response today is to worship and to sing. And so we're going to stand together here in a moment and when we do, we're going to sing these words that we just offered over you as a bit of a prayer. And I want you to continue to just respond and be grateful for what God has done in your life. I want you to keep that memory. I want you to keep those understandings of his faithfulness present in your mind so that we can truly foster that joy that is so emblematic of being a follower of Jesus. Now, during this time, if there's a decision you want to make public, if you want to come forward to join the church, if you need prayer for anything, if you want uh, to put your trust in Christ as Savior, if that's something you've never done, then we want to we want to celebrate any of those decisions with you today. And so please feel free to come forward and make those decisions public. But regardless if that's where you are, we all want to continue to join as a church and worship God for what he has done. So let's stand and sing these promises together as his church. Mine are days that God has numbered I was made to walk with him, yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer, though I fall, his love is sure, for Christ has paid for every faith. I am his forevermore.
dry our tears in times of sorrow darkness not yet understood though i walk through the valley i must travel where i see no earthly good but mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need i know my pain will not be wasted christ completes his work in thing to celebrate. Let me offer a closing prayer of benediction. Father, our heart has found its treasure in you. And so may we leave here today able to have our souls rejoice for what you have done. For we know that fear is gone and hope is sure. For Christ is ours forevermore. It's in his precious and beautiful name we pray. Amen. And amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy the extra day.